At the most basic level, DNA determines who we are, what we look like. The texture of hair, the color of eyes, the tone of skin. DNA reveals relationships and tells the story of ancestry. Your mother's nose, grandfather's eyes, your uncle's smile. In the same way your DNA forms who you are at a cellular level, the church has DNA that directs it. Building blocks that make up our identity. Instructions for what is important to us. Our vision, our mission, our values. The DNA of the church is evident in everything we do. Traces of it are left behind in every place we've been, in the smallest, seemingly inconsequential ways. It is replicated as each of us binds together as a family, a family serving Hampton Roads to change the world. And although we have a beautiful diversity in appearance within our family, the core of who we are, our mission, is the same, to win and lead all those within our reach, to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Glad to be with you today to be able to continue this series that Pastor Thomas started last week called DNA. What makes First Norfolk who we are? And that's what we're going to be looking at today, continuing that series. But I want to share with you that last week, uh, just kind of a recap of some of the things that he said to us uh, during this message. Pastor Eric reminded us last week that uh, we're on a mission uh, as a church. Uh, he gave us a picture of the vision of our church for the future. He talked about the specifics of uh, for this church uh, at the two locations that we have right now, for here at our Volvo location, that we believe right now that God would have us over the next 10 years uh, multiply and grow in some significant ways. He talked about the opportunity for us to plant 10 locations or to be in 10 locations in the next 10 years in the seven cities of Hampton Roads. He talked about the significance of our starting planting 20 new churches over the next 10 years. He talked about us having 1,500 life groups uh, that would impact the lives of 15,000 or more people in the next 10 years. That's a pretty sizable vision. But beyond that, he gave us from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, kind of a big picture vision of God's vision for the, the church at large. And that is that we are individuals that are on a mission, uh, that are on a rescue mission with Jesus. He said that Jesus came for that purpose to be on a rescue mission. And as a church, we uh, who are new in Christ, he said, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The old, everything is now new. So we are therefore now ambassadors for Christ. And he said that God has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation, that we have a message of hope to take to the world around us, that it's possible for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be made new in Christ. And my question for you is, did you hear the message last week? Now, I realize many of you are in the room and many of you heard the words that the pastor spoke, but that's really not what I'm asking. I'm asking, did that message resonate with you? Did it cause you to say, oh my, I'm glad to be a part of a church that is on mission in that way? He said that our mission really is that we are making disciples who will join us on this same rescue mission. Something well up inside of you and cause you to say, I want to be a part of that kind of church. I want to be a part of that mission. I want to be giving myself to making disciples who will join us on this same rescue mission. Now, I ask you if you, if you heard that message, not as an insult to you, but I recognize that when I read through the Gospels, that at times when Jesus was teaching, some people were completely on board with him, and sometimes they kind of missed 
what he was saying that was really important. Sometimes Jesus would end his teaching like this. He would say, now to the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. He was saying, for those of you that are really paying attention and fully understand, I want you to grasp the depth of this meaning. But Jesus had times and moments, even when he was with his disciples, when they seemed to kind of miss the heart of the message, of what he was saying to them. And our text today, I think, illustrates that very thing. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 10. And I want you to look at verse 33 and following. And I want you to hear Jesus communicating how clear he was on his understanding of why he had come. Understanding why he had come on mission, on this rescue mission, to be able to give his life as a ransom for many. In verse 33, Jesus said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Now, he had been traveling with the disciples. He had been in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, and was making his way south to Jerusalem. And he said, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him. They will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and they will scourge him. They'll spit on him, and they will kill him. And... The third day, he will rise again. Now, Jesus has just pointed out to the disciples for the third time in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10 record a very similar statement by Jesus saying to the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem, and I will rise again. Now, you would think on the heels of such an announcement that the disciples in the hearing of this announcement would probably be somewhat somber and, and maybe kind of reflective and wondering uh, you know, about what that means for the future in some ways. But if you look at the next verse, it's kind of surprising how a couple of the disciples responded. Verse 35 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. It's kind of surprising. They they kind of missed the heart of the message of what Jesus said we're going to Jerusalem for. They kind of skipped on ahead, fast forwarded. And in some ways they were kind of thinking, but what about us? And perhaps they were thinking like some of the other Jewish leaders at that time that Jesus was going to be uh, this earthly Messiah, that he was going to come and overthrow Rome and he was going to take over and set up an earthly kingdom. And, and so they're in some ways saying, can I be the vice president and can he be the chief of staff? Can we be right there beside you? Can we have these places of prominence, places of power? Can we be in close proximity to you, Jesus? And can we have these places of leadership? Well, Jesus looks at them and says, you really don't fully understand what you're asking in this moment. And what's interesting about that is that this really is not the first time that this kind of thing had happened because if we go back to Mark chapter 9, what we will discover is that Jesus had something to say yet again. I want us to look at verse 30 and following of chapter 9. The Bible says that they departed from there. Again, they were north of the Sea of Galilee and they passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and he said to them, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. After he is killed, he will rise again on the third day. But they did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask him. 
After Jesus has said this to the disciples, this is the second time that he's made this statement to them. Jesus was clear on his mission. He came on a rescue mission. Why did he come on this rescue mission? Because God saw our need. The Bible says that our sin has separated us from God and because of our great need, there was no way for us to be reunited with God short of a sacrifice of a sinless one. Jesus was born into this earth and born into this world so that he might come and live a sinless life and give his life as a sacrificing atonement, a sacrificial atonement to pay my sin debt and your sin debt. It was the rescue mission that he came on. That's why he came. And he was clear on that. He knew that he was going to Jerusalem and he knew that going to Jerusalem would result in his death. But Jesus had a secondary mission. And the secondary mission that he had was making disciples. Why was that necessary? Well, it was important and necessary because once Jesus had gone to Jerusalem, had died, had been buried and rose again, he would ascend later to be with the Father and then these disciples would be responsible for going on this rescue mission for being sent by Jesus on this mission to make other disciples and to take to them the message of hope that man's sins could be forgiven, that there was life to be found in Jesus Christ alone. And so these men were entrusted with this message. Last week, the pastor said to us that we have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation, imploring others to be reconciled to God. So Jesus was pouring himself into the lives of these men for the last three years. And as he invested himself in them, he was passionate about teaching them the truth. Jesus served their needs by teaching them the truth. I want you to look at what happened now in verse 33. The Bible says he came to Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in the house, he asked them this question. What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? Now, like any good attorney knows, you don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. And I believe that Jesus already knew the answer to this question. He knew what these guys were talking about. He wanted them to know that he was aware of what they were discussing. The Bible says next that they kept silent for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Who would be the greatest? Again, they're kind of thinking about themselves in the middle of this moment. Jesus has told them again, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And their thoughts, again, are about which one of us is going to be the greatest in this ordeal. Jesus had something to say to them about greatness. And it was something that we need help with clarifying for our lives because we're prone, just like the disciples, to get caught into buying into the world's view of greatness. Now, historically, there have been a number of people that have loved this title, Great. And they thought, you know, I I like this so much they attached it to their names. Uh, You recall there are a number of people through history that have done this, but some that come to mind, Alexander the Great, possibly, uh, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, even in our own lifetime, a famous boxer that we know, Muhammad Ali said, I am the greatest. You're right. He said, I'm the greatest. People love this term, but there's not a singular uniform qualification for determining who gets to claim that name great as a part of who they are. And in this passage of scripture, Jesus helps us recognize the true quality, the true character of greatness. Chuck Colson once said that, speaking about this idea of greatness, that <clears throat> there were many in history, many kings and queens who have sent men into battle to die for their country. But he said, I only know of one king who has gone himself to give his own life for the rescue of his own people. That king 
is Jesus. We recognize that one of the things that Jesus did not say in this moment was he didn't shoo the disciples out for not getting it. He's like, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. Why don't y'all get this? He didn't do that. Uh, he did not say to them, I am great. However, we know that Jesus is great. We're just singing about that earlier, about the greatness of who Jesus is. Now, for us, we recognize Jesus' greatness, but we also recognize by the way he lived his life and how he defined greatness. Jesus helps us to see that greatness has everything to do with service. Look at what he says. The Bible says in verse 35 that he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last and he shall be servant of all. Jesus took this moment to kind of turn things upside down for the disciples. Maybe their way of thinking had not been correct about what true greatness really is. Jesus helps us not denigrate greatness, but he defines greatness for us. And in just a moment, he helps us see something of tremendous importance. But I don't want you to miss the beginning of that verse. The Bible says that he sat down. What's that all about? Well, it wasn't just because he was tired. Jesus was taking the posture, was assuming the posture of a rabbi. The disciples recognized that when Jesus sat down, this was an important moment. He was going to gather them around him as rabbis did, those who followed the rabbi. He would gather them around him and he had something to say to them that was going to be important. Jesus says to them in this moment, look, if any of you desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. It's a reminder to us that in this secondary mission of making disciples, that discipleship happens in this close and intimate setting. Jesus cared about the disciples. He knew them, he loved them, and he served them by teaching them the truth. And Jesus gave himself to being directly connected with them as he gathered them around him. I said a moment ago that we're looking to start 1,500 life groups in the next 10 years. That means really I need every person in this room to be one of those people that says, I'll be investing in a group of people around me. You see, making disciples doesn't mean standing in front of crowds and proclaiming truth to big groups of people. Making disciples happens in this very intimate setting where Jesus was with them. He sat with them and he taught them and he gave them this truth. He said, I'm going to give you the secret to greatness here. And that's what he did. He said, if you want to be first, then you need to be last. He's talking about priority. If you want to be at the front of the line, you want to be at the top of the list, let me tell you the way to get there is to actually go to the back of the line and put yourself at the bottom of the list. That way you'll be considering others as more important than yourself. That way you'll be putting the needs of others ahead of your own. And in so doing, you're going to experience something about true greatness. But then he went on and said, not only should we be last of all, but be servant of all. And in being a servant of all, Jesus uses the word, the Greek word, diakonos. It's the word from which we derive the word deacon. It simply means servant. But in its truest form, it means waiter of tables. It means the, the person who serves your table. Think about it for just a moment about what that person does. When they come to your table, they ask you, what would you like to have? They're serving your needs. They're not just saying, hey, here's what we're serving today. They're saying, what would you like to have? They make it their business to go and get what you need, bring it to your table, they bring you the things that you need to eat. They bring you uh, continuals, uh, refreshing your drink. When you're finished, they take all of the things away for you and they clean things up and allow you to move on about your life. Jesus said this picture of the one who waits tables is a great picture of service 
And truly a great picture of greatness. Jesus wasn't talking here about a position or office in the church, an official role of the deacon in our church. He was talking to his disciples about each one of them that this should be part of their character. Not only did Jesus tell them that, but then he illustrated it and he demonstrated it. Look at the next verse. The Bible says, then he took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken them, taken him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children uh, in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why did this little child matter? Because Jesus was illustrating for them the very way that he lived his life. He recognized that this little child couldn't do anything to catapult Jesus to some place of greatness or prominence in society. A child couldn't pay him back some way. A child couldn't help Jesus. Throughout his life, we find Jesus spending time with all kinds of people, but truly all kinds of people. Jesus was with the lame. He was with the broken. He was with the sick. He was with children. He was with those who really could not pay him back or do anything for him. Jesus was doing for them what they couldn't do for themselves, a picture of greatness. Children, in many ways, would have been those that would have been overlooked by society. And Jesus was saying to the disciples, look, all of us have value. All of us are created in the image of God. All of us have dignity and worth because of that stamp of God's fingerprint on our lives. Not one of us is better or more important than the other. That's why Jesus said that we need to be servant of all. Not just serving those people who look like us or act like us or live in our neighborhood, but serving all people. Jesus told them this was the secret to greatness. Why don't you go back to Mark chapter 10? And I want you to go back and look and see what happened in the rest of that story. In this text, Jesus did follow through with them and said, what is it you want me to do? And they said, we want to sit on the right and left. We want these places of prominence. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. And Jesus asked them a question and he said to them, look, are you able to drink the cup that, that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What was he saying? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm on mission. I'm on this rescue mission and I'm going to give my life. Are you able to do that? They quickly responded, yes, we're able. Not knowing again what they're saying. But Jesus says to them, look, indeed, you've spoken the truth because you will indeed drink this cup and you will indeed be baptized with this same experience that I will. The disciples would ultimately give their lives for the sake of the gospel, just like Jesus did. Jesus knew that about them. And he said to them, look, I didn't come on the mission of choosing who was going to be on the right and left. That's not why I came. I came on a rescue mission to be able to provide the forgiveness of sin for all. Jesus knew why he was here. He was clear on his mission. And he communicated that over and over to his disciples. So once again, we find Jesus helping them see that there's something different about the DNA of the disciples and the DNA of the rest of the world. If you look down to verse 42, Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. He was saying to them, you know the people who think they're great and the people who consider themselves great. They love their position of power and their influence and they love to be able to boss people around and tell people what to do. And they lord it over people, reminding them, hey, I'm your boss, okay? You do what I'm telling you to do. And Jesus was helping them see that's the DNA of one group of people. But look at the next verse. He says, yet it shall not be so with you. You might just underline those words, not so with you. 
Great words, great reminders to us that as followers of Jesus, we are not like the rest of the world. We are different from, separate from the rest of the world. Jesus said it'll be different among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Once again, he uses this Greek word diakonos. Again, he's saying we'll become the one who waits on tables. You're going to serve other people. You're going to wait on them. You're going to help them with what they need. That's your role as a follower of Christ. He's helping us see and confirming again that service becomes the sweet spot for the church. Service becomes the sweet spot, the identifier, this DNA marker of followers of Jesus. You should be able to identify a follower of Jesus, he said, in other places by the love that we have for other people. And here he would say that the way you serve, the way you live, the way you consider other people of value would be a great marker, an identifier of you with Jesus. I want you to not miss what he says next. Look at verse 44. He says, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be, what does your text say? Slave of all. It may say servant. This is the, the word doulos. It's a different Greek word that Jesus uses here. And it means bond servant or household slave. Jesus kind of takes this one notch lower. He says, look, you should be waiters of tables. You should be serving the needs of other people. And then he makes this profound statement when he uses this word doulos that must have gotten their attention. He says, no, actually, if you want to be great, you need to be like a slave to all. Recognize the significance of that word. Uh, we don't like that word in our culture today. We recognize that we're not, a, we're not in favor of slavery. And yet in this moment, Jesus said, look, as you're part of your identity, you need to not miss this. You truly want to follow after me. This is a call for us to die. It is a call for us to die to ourselves. Recognize that a slave did not have rights of their own. A slave was to do the bidding of his master. And in this case, Jesus is saying that we become a slave to him. The Apostle Paul took this very literally. If you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, look at the introduction of his letters, he identified himself, Paul, an apostle, a bond servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Paul said that I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself, died for me. He said that the life that he lives now is the life of Christ living through him. We've put away my own selfish desires and my own selfish ambition and I've given up my life for the sake of living my life for the pleasure of God. It's a pretty strong word that Jesus uses here. And he says, if you truly want to be great, there is great sacrifice involved. There is tremendous service involved in truly being great. What does this look like for our church? Well, I think that one of the ways that can help us with uh, thinking about this as a church is that our church uh, is made up of individual members of this body of Christ, individuals whose lives have been transformed by Jesus and have this servant heart. But collectively, as we come together, one of the things that we have an opportunity to see is that first is the desire of God. Uh, there, there are three elements I want us just to bring together and see how service connects these three. But first, the desire of God. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We know that it's God's desire that the message of Christ go out to all of the world. John 3.16 says if, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. We know that God has a heart for the world and he loves the world. 
And he cares for them. And he wants this message of hope to go to them. But he also, we recognize that God really has a heart in more specifically, we would say, for cities. If you read through the Bible, you'll see a number of occasions where God's particular is dealing with a specific city. Because this city is this collection of people that he loves, that have identified themselves as residents or citizens of this group of people. Remember in the Old Testament, Abraham was praying, talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a wicked city, an evil city, and that city's wickedness had come up before God and they were deserving of judgment. And Abraham pleads to God and says, look, if I could only find this many righteous men in the city, would you spare this city? And God says, yes, I will spare this city if you can find this many righteous men in this city. Remember the city of Nineveh and from the book of Jonah? Also, a city that was known for its evil. And in God's grace and mercy, his heart for the city is that even though they are deserving of judgment, he sends prophet, the prophet Jonah, this reluctant prophet, and says, I want you to go to them and proclaim this message to them. Their response to that was that they repented and turned from their sin, and God relented and did not bring this judgment that was coming to them. In the New Testament, we find Jesus looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and we see him with great sorrow over the city because he says the people here are like sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered. They're at risk. And how much he desired to be the shepherd of these people. You certainly see that God has a heart for the city. But next is the needs of the city. So we know God's heart for the city, but then the needs of the city. If we were to look at the seven cities of Hampton Roads, one of the things that we would discover is that not one of them has a long-range plan to see how they could increase their poverty or how they could reduce education, or how they could increase crime. No, every one of those cities have long-range plans and hopes and dreams for their city that the city would have economic prosperity, that the city would be a safe place for the citizens to live, and that other people would want to come to be a part of that city. Cities have plans for improving their education and how they could be much better and their children uh, could be well-educated and could learn. Cities have plans for that. They have dreams. But then when we look at the attributes of the church, we see the coming together of all three of these, the heart of God, the needs of the city, and the attributes of the church that create this sweet spot of service in the middle. The ability to be able to connect and bring those needs and those desires of God and those attributes of the church together. You see, service becomes the sweet spot for the church. It becomes the, the highway, it paves the highway over which the good news of the gospel will travel. We have an opportunity to use the attributes that God has given to us. What are those? Love for God. Recognize that when you come to know Christ, you're overwhelmed by, you are compelled by the love of Christ to live differently. He transforms us from the inside out so that our lives are different. We have a great love for God. We have a love for other people. God has given each one of us unique and individual spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 17 says those gifts are to be used not just for ourselves, but for the common good. Speaking particularly of within the church, I believe that God even uses our gifts outside of the walls of the church to bless others. He's certainly given us abilities and talents to be able to use to serve the needs of other people around us. We say it this way. We say that we are serving Hampton Roads to change the world. How would we serve Hampton Roads to change the world? Well, serving Hampton Roads means that God has given us the ability to be able to bring to this world, to bring to our own community a message of hope, 
And when people come to know Christ, when they hear the message of the gospel and their lives are transformed, it also transforms the city in which we live. We believe that we're serving Hampton Roads to change the world. As you serve here, in this church and outside of the walls of this church, it helps transform people's lives and others are blessed. This past week, I had the opportunity to be at a luncheon for a young lady who's grown up in this church, been a part of this church for many years. She's in the medical profession. Yesterday, she finished up a yard sale selling everything that she owned. And she's making her way across the world, across the globe, going into countries that are closed to the gospel. She has an avenue for getting in to be able to provide medical care for people in crisis. See, people in this church have served people like her. She, in turn, is now going to the far ends of the earth to take the gospel and medical care to the needs of people that find themselves in a crisis. We believe that serving Hampton Roads becomes this sweet spot for us in a way that we're able to make an impact on the lives of other people that is transformational and changes lives. I believe that the church is uniquely equipped to do just this. So, there are two questions I want to ask you. Where are you serving? Where are you serving God's purposes? Where are you serving Hampton Roads to change the world? I'm going to suggest to you there are two places, and I'm going to ask really for every one of you in this room, those of you that are involved, I'm going to ask you to consider that you should be serving, if you're a follower of Christ, in both of these places. The first one is a formal place of service, a formal place of service in the life of this church. Now, what is a formal place of service? Well, it's a place where you've been elected or asked or specifically enlisted to take on a role and a responsibility. And there are many, many, many of them. I work directly with all of the life group leaders in our church. They are joining me in this mission of helping to make disciples, developing missionary followers of Jesus that love God, love others, and live the mission. They are directly connected with these people, gathered around tables or in groups here in our church or in homes, and they're teaching them the Word of God and helping them know how they can grow to become more like Jesus. We're engaged in helping people that are far from God find new life in Christ. But there are many other places that people serve in the life of this church formally. Some are elected to serve on ministry teams in our church, and they help with some of the governance and guidance and decision-making things that need to happen. Some are involved in the welcome ministry of our church and they're at the doorways or in the parking lot. Uh, some of you at Volvo are working out there in the coffee shop or you're baking muffins and helping people experience the welcome there and be able to know how it is that they can be connected to and engaged in this body of Christ. At the Volvo location, we have a group of people that have made up and volunteered to step in and be the cleaning team and are helping us with the cleaning of that building and how grateful we are for the work that you're doing there. We have people that are in music ministry in our church, those that are leading on the stage, those that are in the orchestra, those that are in the praise band, those that are behind the scenes helping and serving with cameras and technology and internet and websites. We have people in our church that are serving in formal ways with using their gifts of sewing and project comfort. We have people that are serving meals to internationals every Tuesday at Old Dominion University, helping to connect with international students for the sake of taking the gospel to them. We have individuals in our church that are serving in, again, numerous places. Some that come here on Saturdays and mow the grass at the Kempsel location. I'm going to get in trouble because I'm not going to name your ministry. Whatever it is you're doing, okay? So there are so many ways that people in our church 
are giving and caring for the needs of people in this community and in this body. Those are all formal ways of serving. Let's say too, there are also informal ways of serving. Informal ways of serving are those ways of serving that take place in the other 160, you pick it, three, four, five hours a week that you're not in this building or that you're not at the Volvo location. We're outside of the building. You recognize the significance and the importance of that? Today, we're the church gathered. Later this afternoon, we will be the church scattered. And God will take us to all different parts of the seven cities of Hampton Roads. And so informal places of service are those places where we recognize that our DNA is what Jesus described of us. Not this, we're lording it over other people, but instead we're becoming servant of all, becoming last of all, becoming slave of all. An informal example of service. Now, there's a lady in our church who does Super Fridays, S-O-U-P-E-R, Super Fridays. Met with her several months ago. I was fascinated just in this conversation to learn. She said, God's given me the gift of cooking. I love to cook, bake, and do all kinds of things. And she said, so in the springtime, I set up a table in my front yard. And every Friday, I make this huge batch of soup. And I make these different containers of soup. I've got a sign I put out. And I put them out for neighbors and people that are coming by to pick up. And her neighbors know that, and she feeds people every Friday. Now, nobody from this church enlisted her to do that. It's who she is. It's who she is as a servant of Christ. Some of you may have seen the video that went viral this last week. USA Today carried an article about it. A young lady in Texas, 18-year-old, servant, uh, serves tables at Waffle House. Any of you see this video? Some of you? Yeah, it's a great story. It's an amazing story. Somebody caught this on video and then posted it and it kind of went crazy with that. But this girl's 18 years old. She's trying to make some money so she can go to college. And there was an elderly customer who came in and he couldn't cut up his meat. And he asked her if she would cut up his meat. And she cut up his meat for him. The cooks and other people were calling for her to get other dishes. She said, wait, I'm doing this. And so she, she cuts up this man's meat. Now, you know, she did not sign up at her church to say, I'll be the person that stands around and cuts up meat for elderly people that can't cut up. I'm not in the official capacity. You see, she was there. And in that moment, his need and her ability intersected. And there was an opportunity to serve and to make a difference in this man's world. A little bit like the Good Samaritan. Think about it. Oh, that gal, actually, a uh, school in Texas saw that and gave her a $16,000 scholarship. I mean, she's kind of famous today, but she didn't do it because she thought she'd be famous. This man had a need. Good Samaritan. You remember the story that Jesus told about the man going down the road to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers and they left him on the roadside for dead. You remember the priest came by and the Levite came by. They didn't stop. They were busy. Other things to do. Couldn't help him. But then this Samaritan man came by. You remember he helped him get out of the ditch. You see, he didn't sign up at his church and say, hey, I'll be the one responsible for walking up and down the road to see if anybody's been left on the roadside for dead that I can help. No. This man's need and this man's ability intersected. And God used him as an individual who would reach out to and touch the life of this individual to make a difference. You see, we can serve formally, and we should. We also are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him wherever we go. And as God brings people across your pathway and he's given you the ability to meet a need, we have the opportunity to make an eternal kingdom difference in the lives of others around us.
So my second question for you is, why do you serve? Why serve? Well, our serving really is a Christ-like quality and a Christ-like characteristic. I would say to you again that we've chosen the language serving Hampton Roads to change the world because the gospel is powerful to change people's lives from the inside out. But I recognize that even with a message like this, it's possible that someone might misunderstand this and think it's really important for me to do a lot of good things. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine helps clarify some of this for us. It says that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of works, or if it were, we would all be boasting and bragging about that. He said, our salvation is a gift of God. None of us could ever do enough good works. None of us could ever serve enough, work hard enough, long enough to merit God's favor and to merit our salvation. Our salvation is a gift of God through Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus came on this rescue mission. So we don't serve in order to be saved. We don't serve so that God would notice us and say, hey, I'm gonna give him some extra favor. We don't get points with God for our service. No, instead we serve because of what Christ has already done for us. Ephesians 2.10 says that we, we, the body of Christ, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God appointed in advance that we should walk in them. You recognize that God's plan for your life is already that you as a redeemed individual, as one who's bought with the blood of Jesus, would now be this servant who would begin to walk in the ways that God would have for you. And that your service would be out of gratitude and out of response to the gospel, not so that somehow God would notice you and that you could be saved. We serve because we have a risen Savior. And so I want to close with this, just this thought. If you know Jesus, he's already transformed your life. You have a relationship with Jesus. Serve the Lord with gladness. Put a great smile on your face and allow God to use you to make a difference and join us in this mission of serving Hampton Roads to change the world. But if you don't know Jesus, I want to say to you, it's important for you to recognize that God's plan for you begins with the rescue mission of Jesus. Jesus is on a rescue mission and we are on a rescue mission to help you who are far from God recognize that you can find new life in Christ. Simply from, by turning from your sin, placing your faith and trust in Jesus, calling on him, what you're going to discover when you call on Jesus is that his arms are open wide and he's ready to receive you. When you receive Christ into your life, what you'll find is that he will transform your heart from the inside out. He will make you one who loves other people. He will transform you into a servant of all. Now recognize that our service is not just to those like us, just to those near us. Our service is to all. And we serve for God's pleasure. We serve for God's glory. I hope that you will allow God to use you to join us in serving Hampton Roads to change the world. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, it is our desire today as we've gathered here for worship uh, to acknowledge who you are in our lives. We recognize that you are the King of Kings, you are the Lord of Lords. Father, I pray that in this room today that you would speak to the hearts and lives of men and women in this room. Father, those that are other location, I pray that you would help us to 
know and come to recognize, Father, our need for you. Our need for you to lead and direct in our lives. God, for you to orchestrate those moments where you're calling us to serve and meet the needs of others around us, to see them as more valuable than ourselves. God, I pray that you would use us as a church to serve outside of the walls of this building in this community in such a way that others can't help but take notice. God, not that they would point to us and say, aren't those people good, but instead that they would point to you and recognize that you've done a transforming work in our heart. Father, if there are those in this room who do not know you today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would bring conviction to their heart, that you would help them to know that you stand ready to receive them as they would call upon you and they would ask you, Lord, for the forgiveness of their sin. They would receive you into their life, surrender their lives to you as Lord and Savior. God, would you do your work in our hearts this day that we might bring glory and honor to you for it's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen. In just a moment, we're gonna stand. We're gonna continue to worship the Lord. And I'm gonna ask you to respond today in, in whatever way that God leads you. This altar's open. You may wanna just come here and just uh, talk to the Lord about how it is that he would use you to serve. But I, I wanna invite you today to recognize that there are a number of ways that you can serve formally in the life of this church and informally outside of that. So my prayer for you today is that uh, you would commit to the Lord your willingness to be used by God as his servant for his glory. Our worship team is going to come and lead us and we're going to continue to worship the Lord. Now you stand and you respond as God leads you today.
Oh 